Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Mr. Pop. <laughs> that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Four score and seven years ago. When in the course of human events. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not. What your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America. Presidents come in just about all shapes and sizes, and they have their own unique takes on what it is to be a leader. But also, one of the things which they can't do, or at least the person I'm speaking to is going to say to us, is to truly hide their inner feelings, and that really the face is somewhat of a window, a gateway to not only to their soul, but to their thought process. How wrong am I with that intro so far, Dan? You're doing pretty well. The face is the only place in the body where the muscles attach right to the skin. So mm-hmm. it's a quick, real-time read of how someone is feeling. And we have more facial muscles than any other species on the planet. So it is a wealth of information just sitting there waiting to be analyzed. Okay. So you've kind of dedicated your professional career to studying the true inner feelings and emotions of people. This started out in the business realm, I believe. It did. Uh, In 1998, someone at IBM cued me into an article from a Cornell University publication talking about the breakthroughs in brain science titled What People Can't Say. The studying statistics about 95% of our mental activity is not fully conscious. I mean, it's just overwhelming how much we are gut-level decision makers. And I think the same thing applies to politics, which is often called a blood sport. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of emotions that are going on in, in politics, but originally I applied it to business and I've done work for about half the world's top 100 companies looking at particularly consumers' responses to advertising. But I've always been interested in politics and starting in 2004 for CNN, the New York Times, eventually for Fox, for Reuters, MSNBC, I have been focusing a good deal of my interest and time on politicians, particularly presidential candidates. Anyone must go into a meeting with you with a certain level of trepidation, though, surely. <laughs> you know, in, in no, effect, nobody... you're, you're a mind reader. Yeah, no one, no one plays poker with me. It's been a long time. <laughs> so t- t- just before we kind of really launch into this, tell us a few more tenants about the science of actually what you do. So you explained that the muscles are directly underneath the skin. We have more facial muscles than any other creature, etc. Give us a little bit more insight into exactly what you do. 
Okay. So there are 23 different expressions on the Mm -hmm. face that correspond to seven core emotions. They're happiness and anger, to hug or to hit. They are sadness. They are also fear, surprise, disgust, and contempt. The first facial coder in the world, I would argue, was actually Leonardo da Vinci in -hmm. his work on facial anatomy and how he expressed things. He got to a standard that was not met for at least two centuries. And then Charles Darwin came in and really began to codify it as a system. Well, that's the one thing which I was kind of, when I was doing my research on this, I was really surprised about is that um, you mentioned Darwin quite a lot. So tell us exactly how Darwin codified this way of analyzing facial expressions for us. Well, in his work on evolution, he essentially said to himself, why do we have emotions? What adaptive advantage could they possibly give us? And what he realized was that it's it's that chance to read other people, to know whether you're friend or foe, to know Mm. what's going on. I mean, I would argue that the 25 square inches in the middle of our face, where our nose and our mouth and our cheeks and our eyes give away our emotions, is absolutely essential. Uh, It's been said that there are only two currencies in the world, dollars and emotions. And they intersect getting to office, winning elections. That's about making that emotional connection. Almost always the candidate who hits the campaign trail and actually enjoys interacting with other people tends to be the person who wins. Go back to LBJ. He once said, if you can't walk into a room and know who's with you and who's against you, you ain't worth spit as a politician. That's classic LBJ for you. It is absolutely classic LBJ and actually very good. Looking through the list of presidents that um, we are doing on this series and your take on them, I must admit, I found it utterly fascinating because I got this the wrong way around. I'm presuming that you're right and I'm wrong. You're the person that's been doing this for years (laughs) and and you know what you're talking about. But if we just start with Washington, right? So this is what you wrote. So Washington, um, surprise is his signature emotion. Eyes wide, as might be expected, of a good military commander and former land surveyor. Top personality by the trait, conscientiousness. Okay, so let's put conscientiousness just to one side for now. But wide-eyed and surprise being his signature emotion. First off, before you explain that, we don't have 40 to 50 photographs of Washington. We probably have, I don't know, I'm guessing at this, let's say 20 portraits maybe all right how can you reliably analyze washington considering these are paintings and drawings that we have because when i when i think of washington i always think of this dour guy who never smiled and for me uh, surprise is wide-eyed he never seems wide-eyed to me so first off deal with the fact that this is an era before photographs and then Explain how I've got him so wrong. I am Isaac Potts. I have witnessed George Washington praying for divine guidance at Valley Forge in 1777. I heard a plaintive sound as of a man at prayer. I tied my horse to a sapling and went quietly into the woods. And to my astonishment, I saw the great George Washington on his knees alone with his sword on one side and his cocked hat on the other. He was at prayer to the god of the armies, beseeching to interpose with his divine aid as it was his crisis in the cause of the country, of humanity, and of the world. Such a prayer I had never heard from the lips of man. I left him alone praying. I went home and told my wife. I saw a sight and heard today what I never saw or heard before and just related to her what I had seen and heard and observed. We never thought a man could be a soldier and a Christian, but if there is one in the world, it is Washington. She also was astonished. We thought it was the cause of God, and America could prevail. Yes, I had a real conundrum here because I have never before tried to go this far back in history to make a comparative set looking at the presidents. So there's all sorts of factors going on. If you talk about Washington, one thing is changes in dentistry over time. Now presidents happily smile. But my Mm. God, by election day, inauguration day, rather, in Washington's case, he had one tooth left. 
one natural tooth left in his mouth. So he was not going to be inclined to smile a whole lot if he didn't have to. Uh, mm-hmm. So you have changes in dentistry. Uh, when photography came on, it was slow at first. Then, of course, you had a you know quick you know Polaroid snapshots. But initially, you had to send for a long time to take the photograph. So when I went through the presidency, the only way to do this fairly is I had to look at the levels of technology and how it changed. And I Mm -hmm. divided them into three different eras and I had to index their expressions within the year to be fit, you know, honest about my data set. And in the case of Washington, I had to go back to, yes, there were some paintings. There was also, however, sculptures. He also appeared Mm -hmm. on coins. Uh, There was etchings. I had to look for any way in which I could manage to capture some imagery for Washington. So that's how I was able to do it. And the earliest period was obviously the most difficult. And when you get to the contemporary, it's easier. But I, I ran my mathematical calculations to allow for those historical changes over time. So with Washington, um, he shows a fair amount of anger, but I'm looking for the emotions where he really indexes high compared to the other presidents. How mm-hmm. does he stand out emotionally one from the other? So certainly there's a good deal of anger there, some, some fortitude, some de- determination, but it is the eyes wide open, the eyebrows also lifting. Those steps as a human being, this is why Darwin's work is so fascinating. Our expressions really just make a lot of innate sense. Surprise is I want to gather more information. How do I go gather more information? I look around more. I take in more. And my eyebrows lifting and my eyes going wide allows me to take in more information. Well, let's go back to Washington. First of all, he was a land surveyor. He's literally mm-hmm. out there surveying the landscape, trying to take in the dimensions of what he's seeing. Helped him a lot when he became a military commander to try to figure out the terrain that he was fighting in. Uh, as a political leader, what do you have to do? You have to notice who's with you and who's against you and all those permutations going on. But the second emotion that's also characteristic of Washington is interesting, which is disgust. Disgust is bad taste, bad smell, the nose wrinkles, the upper lip curls. It's as if you're trying to get away from something that doesn't sit with you very well. Mm-hmm. Honestly, being president didn't sit all that well with Washington. He was happy to go away after those two terms in office. Politics in some ways disgusted him. It's really that combination, I would say, of surprise followed by disgust and then some anger. That is, in fact, from my research, from all the ways in which I could capture imagery of Washington, that's his standout. You mentioned at the start of your answer there, your mathematical kind of model. Break that down for us. Okay. So there are 23 expressions. Some Mm -hmm. of them merely go to a single emotion. For instance, when your lips press together, that's a reliable indication of anger. When you get a little crease in your cheeks, that's a pretty good sign of sadness by itself. If your mouth pulls wide, very reliable indication of fear. Big smile on the face, obviously happiness. But a true smile is when the muscle around the eye relaxes and you get the twinkle in the eye. Can't be faked. That's when you get a real smile. As Woody Allen said, happiness makes up in height what it lacks in length. So more of our emotions, more of our emotions are negative, but when we can hit that high note of happiness, hey, it's great stuff. So some of the expressions go to merely one emotion, but some of them are implicated in two or even three emotions. So for instance, when your chin pushes upwards, kind of a jutting upward motion. Yes, exactly. That, that is sadness, anger, and disgust. All three of those are involved. So when I'm noticing what muscle movement. It's called an action unit, according to Dr. Paul Ekman, who's kind of the modern Charles Darwin on this kind of research. So each of these action units, uh, I have proportions of which emotions they go to, and I can calculate them and, and roll them up into my metrics. And do you break down each individual emotion on a score between, let's say, one and five or one and 10? Or is things an absolute? So you're either sad or you're happy or you're shown disgust etc um no you're you're because only about half of these expressions go to a single emotion those, mm. those get assigned 100 percent to that emotion but a lot of them as i just said with the uh, upside down smile where the chin pulls upward that's three different emotions so you got to proportion it to each of those emotions in turn so as i'm going through and say 40 50 photographs taking you know, modern presidents into account, then I'm able to proportion and say what emotions stand out the most for them 
in comparison to the other presidents. So no, a lot of the emotions go to more than one place, for instance. And you got to be realistic about that. Sometimes people think facial coding is going to be like cartoonishly simple, but mm. but it's not. My fellow Americans, I come before you tonight as a candidate for the vice presidency and as a man whose honesty and, and integrity has been questioned. Now, the usual political thing to do when charges are made against you is to either ignore them or to deny them without giving detail. I believe we've had enough of that in the United States, particularly with the president administration in Washington, D.C. To me, the office of the vice presidency of the United States is a great office. I feel that the people have got to have confidence in the integrity of the men who run for that office and who might obtain it. Let's put to one side um, the early presidents who there isn't photographic evidence of. I'm guessing, and this is purely a guess, um, that what Richard Nixon displayed when he was doing his job, when he was um, in the Oval Office, when he was campaigning, the facial expressions that he used could have been very different to Richard Nixon, the husband, the father. The friend, if he actually had any friends, I think he was famously kind of friendless, but let's say he had one or two. Right. <laughs> so how do you account for that? That there's going to be a private person. And I and I get it that there's going to be unguarded moments. I utterly get that. Unguarded moments in public where you could say, aha, you're you know expressing your true emotions here, Mr. Obama or Mr. Herbert Walker Bush, whoever. But surely there's going to be a whole range of emotions in that not in that resting phase, but when that somebody's not on public display, that surely you're not taken account of. Yeah. So first of all, it's it's entirely true that I do not have their private life. I, I have to have somebody mm. who rendered them as an impression yeah. of, of a Washington. I have to be someone had a camera, snapped a photograph, had video footage from which a still was derived, that sort of thing. So that that's utterly true. But I would say a couple other things here. One is I tried to limit myself to only about 5% of the imagery I worked from for the coding to be from their early childhood or before they were president. So I, I wanted some sense of where they'd come from, mm-hmm. uh, how they emotionally evolved, so to speak. But I focused the, the bulk of it when they were president. I didn't try to take after they were president. I tried to take at the height of their career, how we know them as a president, the public face that we saw. Uh, sure, they could try to, you know, Nixon, of course, famously always tried to show his fl- flashing V sign as if he was Winston Churchill light. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, the real Nixon was a very sad person. Uh, there's a wonderful quote from a childhood neighbor who said, Nixon was not the sort of boy you would pick up and hug. Uh, there, there was just, I mean, he always did lack friends. He just did not have close personal relationships. There was mm-hmm. something perpetually forlorn about Richard Nixon. And I think it had to do with a social psychological isolation that he suffered from. Yes, the politicians can throw up the smile, but what I really tried to do, particularly when I could get to modern presidents, and I had a pretty wide range, is I just went to Google. I went to the images. I straight, started straight down, so I'm not making self-conscious choices. The only mm-hmm. thing I left out typically was if it was the same event, but a different camera angle, for instance, for more than one photographer. I just tried to, to move down through that. And really on the modern presidents i was more than 40 or 50 photographs probably north of that by some degree it's the older presidents where yes i probably had you know 25 to 40 images that i could find for them that that's where the limitation was the president of the united states Chairman, delegates to this convention, my fellow Americans, four years ago, standing in this very place, I proudly accepted your nomination for President of the United States. And with your help and with the votes of millions of Americans, we won a great victory in 1968. Tonight, I again proudly accept your nomination for President of the United States. 
let's just stay with Nixon for now, because in your in your notes to me, you said that Nixon displayed sadness and acceptance with conscientiousness and then with neuroticism. How much of that is you retrofitting what we know about Nixon with truly looking at those images? I must admit, uh, the first two, sadness and acceptance, I get the sadness bit. I think we can all look at photographs of Nixon and his eyes don't twinkle. His eyes never shone brightly. Acceptance? Explain acceptance to me as a facial expression and how you've mapped that onto uh, Richard Milhouse Nixon. Sure. When I, when I started investigating, deciding to use facial coding in business and politics and actually done some work in pro sports as well, helping teams with draft choices and trades and team chemistry, I realized that happiness being the one positive emotion needed mm-hmm. to be explored more deeply to come back with a, a richer, nuanced understanding of people. So I divided into four levels of happiness. So joy is the penthouse. That, that's yeah. where the eyes are twinkling and so forth. The basement of happiness, the Filene's basement of happiness is acceptance. It is a brief smile. It is often unilateral, which is say one side of the face only. And it just, it's, it's very remote from a sparkle. And that's where Nixon resides. In between that is pleasure, which is a really broad smile and satisfaction is a bit more muted, but way better than the Filene's basement of smiling. So Nixon did not have the twinkle pretty much ever. And uh, that begrudging smile that like, you know, this is the worst joke I ever heard, but at least you tried to humor me. That's basically where Nixon resided regarding happiness. So that's how I could get to the emotions. Now, you mentioned traits. I am not an expert in traits, but I am fascinated by it. There was an earlier Mm -hmm. book done by psychologists who they took only people who felt they were an expert on a given president and they cross-indexed all of their readings of which traits they thought applied to a president. So that's not my work, but I found it really interesting to bring that into bear because the only other psychological study of the presidents that was ever really attempted. And so the conclusion of those people who felt they were you know, Nixon biographers and so forth was that conscientiousness was his number one trait and neuroticism was his secondary trait, the other one that was most common. And neuroticism is a pretty frequent trait of the seven, actually of the 11 presidents that you asked me to think about for today. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of them fall in sadness as their leading you know, emotion. And neuroticism is either first or second as a personality trait for a lot of them. So there's a lot of correlation between sadness, which you know, you're always trying to get out of the grips of it. You're, you're mm-hmm. trying to find some way to get to more equilibrium, but you don't necessarily get there. And that's where the neuroticism sadness linkage, you know, makes an awful lot of sense. The American instinct that led these young men and women to pick up the torch and cross this bridge, that's the same instinct that moved patriots to choose revolution over tyranny. It's the same instinct that drew immigrants from across oceans and the Rio Grande. The same instinct that led women to reach for the ballot, workers to organize against an unjust status quo. The same instinct that led us to plant a flag at Iwo Jima and on the surface of the moon. It's the idea held by generations of citizens who believe that America is a constant work in progress, who believe that loving this country requires requires more than singing its praises or avoiding uncomfortable truths. It requires the occasional disruption, the willingness to speak out for what is right, to shake up the status quo. That's America. Okay, so let's jump around with some of these presidents. And let's start with Obama, who we all have an idea of what he looked like, how he moved, and we all have our thoughts about him. We're going to start with him as opposed to, you know, jumping to a Jefferson. I think at least we have a picture of him in our minds. You said joy and contempt, uh, rather contrary impulses. Um, yes, discuss, they are. Discuss. Well, uh, Tony Morris said when, when Obama won the White House, said, I hope you don't end up like the previous presidents with a smile that's about the equivalent of someone who looks like it's been cut out by scissors, that they look really <laughs> oppressed by being in the office. Obama came in with this wonderful smile. I was in the room that night in, in Des Moines when he won the Iowa caucuses. Mm-hmm. And he just had this joyful, 
presence about him, but he didn't go into the Nixonian waving of the hands and the victory symbol and so on. It's almost as if he was trying to guard the authenticity of his smile by not overusing it. But he mm-hmm. really was a very expansive politician coming into the White House. And I think that's where that openness, that twinkling comes, because openness is his leading personality trait which he shares Mm -hmm. with Jefferson. But the contempt really followed, I think, in no small part from what happened in office. All of the backbiting and and log jams that happened in the office, I literally could see that Obama changed over time in the course of his eight years. George Orwell has this wonderful expression. He said, by the age of 50, a man has the face he deserves, that we have signature expressions. We have muscle memory. And those expressions that we make over and over really get etched into our being over time, into our faces. And that's what I saw with Obama. It's not that he lost all capacity to be joyful, but his Mm -hmm. contempt, his disrespect for what he experienced in Washington, D.C., began to take over him. And so with contempt, the corner of the mouth comes up, you smirk, uh, you are kind of You're angry and you're disgusted and you're backing away from a situation. Some of Obama's aides said of him, he is a man who would rather play chess in a town that plays checkers. And I think that's where a lot of the contempt came from. So he held on to the wide openness, but it got Mm. tempered. It got tempered. I obviously know nothing about the human psyche about the human condition because you you ended that little note on obama on the notes to me by saying that top trait he was an extrovert i thought barack hussein obama was an introvert well in that note to you i said that that's what the experts on personality traits concluded and Mm -hmm. i told you in my notes that i had my doubts about that obama liked to sneak away and have a cigarette In the Mm -hmm. White House, he was absent from his own parties. At times, if he could help it, he was quite bookish when he was a student at Columbia University. So, you know, a lot of the personality traits did make sense to me as I got to know their emotions and their biographies. But when the experts said that Obama was an extrovert, that that threw me. I I had my doubts. It threw us both, sir. It threw us both. Okay, let's jump to TR, who's probably the first president of which we have moving images of. So you very clearly said that you just look at photographs. Why photographs are not moving images? Well, there was a lot of work that went into this book. Uh, and I did look at moving images when I looked at all the presidential debates, mm-hmm. which I cataloged all the way from Nixon Kennedy upward. So that was already a ton of work by itself. But the book encompasses not only the presidents, but all those debates and something like 85 foreign leaders. So I had a lot of work cut out for myself. It is a lot more effort to go through the videotape and take it frame by frame than it is to take the imagery or the photographs. So that's why I stuck with that imagery. It also gave me more continuity back to the medallions, the paintings, the sculpture pieces that I had to use for earlier presidents. So I would say some of it is is time efficiency. A lot of it is about continuity of the data set. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so for those two reasons, I I would say that's really what I, I ended up doing. Okay, so TR, you said disgust and sadness. And doing the research and the studying that I've done on TR, I always thought he was this kind of larger than life character who had this joy of life and wanted to take do everything by the ring by the scruff of its neck. We've explained exactly how you map disgust. It's kind of the, it's uh, the edges of the mouth and, and the chin being up and the nose wrinkling. If I think of TR, there's a famous picture of him stood with a fist against um, his waist, just looking fully in control, commanding. I don't see sadness when, when I see him. This is utterly fascinating for me because these initial thoughts and feelings are contrary to how I read the human face. So are you telling me that I don't know how I've been on this planet for 51 years <laughs> and you're seriously telling me that I don't know how to read a face, sir? Uh, people are often wrong. Uh, I did a book called Famous Faces Decoded with 173 celebrities. I mm-hmm. also asked people to rate what they thought was the the emotions that were characteristic of those celebrities. And their accuracy rate was about 35%. 
35 percent as to what was the dominant emotion so yes i i don't think human beings are very good detectives quite honestly it's almost as if we want to be lied to in life for one thing we we take people's words you know for ground truth far too often and i i love the saying that actions speak louder than words and in your face there are little miniature actions these expressions these muscle movements that give you a pretty good index of who someone is now i, I love tr he's a really fascinating character I uh, also mm-hmm. spent some time in my home state. I was born in North Dakota. He was a rough rider out in North Dakota after his wife and his mother both died on the same day. So sadness <laughs> was a part of his life story. Uh, but I think the more interesting emotion for him is really disgust. And it works perfectly for reformers. And he was a reformer. When Mark Hanna, you know, found out that the Republicans were going to allow Roosevelt to be the vice president, he was beside himself because he knew Roosevelt, if he got into office, was going to try to change things. Mark Hanna is the guy who famously said, only two things matter in politics, money, and I can't remember the other thing. <laughs> well, in, in, in FDR's case, he wanted to make a lot of changes and mm-hmm. disgust fits what I've seen with, for instance, Green Party candidates, both in America and in Germany. Bernie Sanders, for that matter, if we want to get really contemporary. Disgust means something tastes bad, smells bad. It's not how it should be. Teddy Roosevelt was obviously, you know, after all of the syndicates that controlled American business, he's the one who brought in food and drug testing, measuring of, of statistics to make sure that, you know, we had a, a better life, better products that were being consumed by us. So he was a consummate person who was never satisfied with how things were. So yes, there, there is this exuberance about him, this zestiness to him, this anger. But the standout emotion, if you compare him to the other presidents, is disgust and then sadness because of a lack of satisfaction with how things were. I mean, he was good friends with Taft. Taft is like Obama, a really exuberant person. But mm. he didn't think Taft was pushing hard enough. He wanted Taft to do more. And so what did he do? He destroyed the friendship and uh, created a three-way presidential race because he was going to come back and, and give another dose of disgust-driven reform for American life. The great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated clearly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe that the majority of the plain people of the United States will, day in and day out, make fewer mistakes in governing themselves than any smaller class or body of men, no matter what their training, will make in trying to govern. I believe again that the American people are as a whole capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Our opponents pay lip loyalty to this doctrine, but they show their real beliefs by the way in which they champion every device to make the nominal rule of the people a sham. I think you answered this uh, earlier on, uh, way at the start of our chat. You are seriously telling me that the way that our faces uh, react to our emotions is completely, utterly universal. So whether I'm a bushman in the Kalahari or whether I'm an Eskimo or I am somebody from China, I display my emotions exactly the same way, yes? The display rules vary. So what I mean by that is in a different context, you know, what triggers the emotion could vary obviously by culture and by who you are as a person and your life story. But I am someone who has done market research in over 30 countries. I have traveled over 65 countries. Every place I go, you can imagine, what am I doing? I'm looking at people's facial expressions. I'm Mm -hmm. curious to see if I see things that are universal. So I'm going to give you a couple of stories to go to your 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 question and frankly your doubt about the universality of facial expressions. So Mm -hmm. I'm in China, I'm in Shanghai, the guy just taking me around and she says to me, the Chinese people are inscrutable. You can't mm. read their expressions. Well, the guy just just told me that the amount of construction and air pollution going on is dismaying this person. They've just showed fairly profound sadness on their face. 
just like literally seconds before they made this comment to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been looking at the people on the street. I've been looking at statuary. The day before the person made this comment, I was in their one of their wonderful art museums, and I could look at depictions of the emperor from you know the 11th century, the 14th century, and I could see expressions that fit how things look. Now, I'll grant you Japan is the toughest case of trying to read something. They are very muted in what they show. And mm-hmm. in Asia, but particularly Japan, so much more so than China, it's around the eyes that the Japanese reveal more of what's happening. They are really muted around the mouth. So the expressions around the mouth are brief and they're not as intense, but it's the same underlying physiology. The same muscle movements correspond to the same emotions. So it's there, but it's more subtle. It's like a haiku. And when I was a student at Oxford, my favorite haiku that I ever heard, someone said, only problem with haiku form, just as you're about to say something, you run out of. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I'll give you, I'll give you one more example. Even mm-hmm. I'm on my honeymoon. I, I'm in the, the, uh, basically the Amazonian backwaters of Ecuador. We have a tribal chief and we all get to ask him one question. It has to go to a translator who takes it from English and German and so on, and then takes it, puts it into Spanish, and gives it to a second interpreter who then puts it in the language of this person because they just came out of the backwoods, the jungle, as a tribe less than 20 years ago. Basically, I'm sitting there, and everyone's asking the guy a question, and he's shown every emotion. He's shown disgust. He's shown anger. He's shown contempt in response to the questions in our people. The only emotion he hasn't shown, happiness. So when I get to ask my question, I'm the last person I said, have you ever had chocolate? I get the smile. So every emotion was there. Every emotion was there. The acceptance of what we see is what a a leader needs to lead, or the character traits that we even just need to be as fully functioning adults has changed in the last, since 1776, or let's say 1789, if we're dealing with presidents. So how fair is it for us to put our early 21st century notions of emotions on presidents from a very earlier time? Well, I would grant you, first of all, that obviously... In the media era with videography, photographs, etc., the importance of having a public persona of smiling becomes more important. There's no question when I went through and looked at my three different eras that I separated the presidents into that the amount of smiling went up in the most modern era. I don't think you can get to the White House, except for Trump. You can generally not get to the White House without showing a fair amount of happiness on your face, even if there's a degree of feigning it. On the other hand, if you go back from Darwin and you look at evolution, we don't have a brain that we get to replace every 20 years. We don't have 5.0 brain. We have a really primitive brain. It's been there for a long time. The emotional part of the brain is 200 million years old. That's the estimation, that we have a original sensory kind of part of the brain, the most basic part of the brain, the reptilian brain, 500 million years old. Emotional brain, 200 million years old. The rational cognitive brain, 100,000 years old. So everybody feels before they think. And Mm. I would argue that the qualities that you need as a president haven't necessarily changed other than the PR angle. Do you have to have resiliency? Yes. (laughs) Will there be setbacks in your daily life? Will there be treachery from the people around you who are full of their own agendas and their own ambition? Will there be yes people trying to tell you things and you're trying to ferret out what's really going down? Do you need to assimilate a lot of different sources of information to try to figure out a path forward? All of those require some degree of emotional adaptability and flexibility. So from that point of view, Outside of the PR angle, I don't think what's required of a presidency is greatly changed. It's just the scale and the pace has changed. Human nature is human nature. I shouldn't ask this question, but I'm going to anyway. And I'm going to fully <laughs> caveat this uh, by very clearly saying that on 10 American presidents, we aim to be as non-political as possible. And it's one of the reasons why... Donald Trump is not going to be covered with his own series on the show, but also because uh, many historians say that you can't judge an incident or a person 
a historical person and until at least 20 years after that event. It's not truly history, it's current affairs. Then it becomes history. You have enough data, you have perspective to be able to look at their tenure, etc. And also it's one of the reasons why when I get around to doing the Barack Obama show, it's just going to be his run for the presidency and how that was transformational as opposed to looking at his legacy. It's still too early to look rationally, dispassionately at the legacy of Barack Obama. So with all that in mind, the current president is very anomalous. I think most people, whether you agree with his policies or not, would say that he's very different in terms of how he approaches the job. Let's put it that way. When you look at pictures of him and the emotions of which he's displaying, does that also play out that he has a different set of emotions, which at least to me, he wears very nakedly on his sleeve or on his face. But you're the expert at reading people. How different, how unique, how anomalous is Donald Trump from the other inhabitants of the White House? Sure. Well, first of all, I'm a, I'm a dangerous man. So as you started to think about Donald Trump and pose your question, I have to tell you that twice your upper lip curled in disgust. So, <laughs> so, so I, I believe I thought, you know what? I thought I was uh, channeling my inner uh, Japanese uh, heritage there, and I was being inscrutable. <laughs> well, um, obviously not. not. Not quite so much. Um, so, so the first thing is yes, that Trump is unabashedly emotive, which is mm-hmm. which is quite unusual to a degree that we've not seen in any other president. For instance, with anger. There are nine different ways you can show anger on the face. The most intense version is when you have a horizontal funnel. The mouth is open. It's almost like a dog growling because it's bone that's been taken away. In all of the years that I've done facial coding, including in pro sports, the number of times that I've seen that expression, um, it's less than 100. I mean, one of the times that stood out politically was with uh, Hillary Clinton. There was a moment in 2008 where John Edwards is on the stage in New Hampshire, and he says to Hillary, well, Barack and I are change agents, leaving her out. She showed that intense version of anger. And mm-hmm. no wonder that she turned down Edwards' offer a few weeks later to be the VP on her ticket, because she was going to have nothing to do with the guy. When I looked at Trump, and he made his famous comment about good people on both sides regarding Charlottesville, one of the things that struck me, I'm going to stay away from from content and just go to emotional context or what's going on there was how often in that press conference where he backed away from what he had said that was more tempered before, almost as if his aides were controlling for a moment. Now he's in front of the cameras and he's really unleashing as Trump talking. Mm-hmm. He showed that intense version of anger at least three, four, maybe even five times, merely in one press conference alone. I mean, that was absolutely shocking to me as a facial coder, because you do not see people, especially a president in a public setting, normally just letting it fly like that. So it is anger, but it is also just the intensity of all of the expressions he shows. That upside down smile, that is that disgust, anger, sadness expression, he does it to a far more intense degree than most presidents do. He winces more than most presidents do. Whatever emotion he goes to, which is rarely happiness, by the way, whatever expression and emotion he goes to, the intensity levels off the chart compared to other presidents. It's the same thing true of his vocabulary. Things are mm-hmm. tremendous. They're perfect. They are deplorable. American carnage. His language and his emoting are both in the superlative category at all times. It's at maximum volume. So there's nothing diplomatic. There's nothing subtle. It's just thrown out there. He is a very emotive, very impulsive person. And he lives. (laughs) It's all right there on his sleeve, on his face. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. 
When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. white supremacists on the same moral plane. I'm not putting anybody on a moral plane. What I'm saying is this. You had a group on one side and you had a group on the other and they came at each other with clubs and it was vicious and it was horrible and it was a horrible thing to watch. But there is another side. There was a group on this side, you can call them the left, you've just called them the left, that came violently attacking the other group. So you can say what you want, but that's the way it is. <laughs> Well, I do think there's blame. Yes, I think there's blame on both sides. You look at you look at both sides. I think there's blame on both sides, and I have no doubt about it. And you don't have any doubt about it either. And and and, and if you reported it accurately, you would say. But it is sadness and disgust that are the two seminal emotions for Trump. The anger is striking, but we've had a lot of fairly angry presidents. Mm-hmm. Where he's striking with anger is the intensity. It's the sadness and the disgust that stand out otherwise. He is a germaphobe, so the disgust makes a lot of sense. He doesn't like you know, shaking hands. He doesn't like drugs. He's also got a lot of issues around other people of other races. His attitudes around women. And I'm trying to approach this as nonpartisan as I can. These are just statements that are out there in the public record of what he's said about individuals. The sadness, I think, is even more fascinating because, like Nixon, he lost a early sibling from his life. He was not that close to his family, his parents growing up. There is something profoundly sad about Trump. And I think in the end, it comes back to narcissism, that he cannot ever get enough adulation, enough glory, enough chances to bask in people's uh, accommodation of him to satisfy his sense of self. It is that endless sadness and that lack of friendship, which you pointed out Nixon had in common with him, that really stands out for me. Mm. Let's just focus in very quickly on three more presidents. We won't go through the, the whole 10 plus one that we're going to do on 10 American presidents. But the most Trump-esque of previous presidents in terms of just being an utter change from what went before was obviously Jackson. And you say that he displays sadness and, and anger. I don't suppose that's too much of a surprise, but I'm going to try and widen this out just very slightly and tell me, you know what, this is not part of my purview. But I think in your last answer, you widened it out significantly from just facial expressions. In terms of motifs, Jackson had had crazy hair, crazy hair for the time anyway. And Trump has his signature bouffant thing going on on top of his head. Sure. Um, 
How important, and as I say, I appreciate this isn't where we've come in on this conversation, but it's definitely where I, I've ended up. How important is visual style in terms of detracting maybe away from or enhancing emotion? Well, Oscar Wilde has a wonderful quote. He said, only shallow people don't judge others based on appearances. There is a lot of information. There's a lot of information available. So crazy hair, high clothing style, all of those things are game to offer suggestions, certainly. Jackson is very much a kindred spirit, as is Nixon, to uh, Trump. All three of them indexed high on sadness. Uh, mm-hmm. In Nixon's case, it's followed by really tepid happiness. In Jackson's case, it's followed by anger. Jackson was happy to do duels. I mean, you can just imagine Jackson taking advice from Roy Cohn. Always double down if they attack you, attack them twice as hard. Jackson would have mm-hmm. eaten that up. He would have loved that. He's someone who never backed off. And when he came into the White House, I mean, he threw the doors open and said, you know, come on in. I'm the people's president. And people trashed the place. It was not what we had had previously. And there's a lot of similarity between these gentlemen. It also goes to their policies, quite likely, regarding minorities in America. But certainly that sadness is so striking for me. Trump and Nixon actually conferred. Trump asked Nixon's advice way back in before Nixon died, obviously, as to how to run for the presidency. So uh, once I read that detail, it really woke me up that there was a seriousness about Trump running for the White House and that there were some natural affinities between those two leaders. And then I think it goes back to Jackson. I really think it does. Coming a little bit more contemporary in terms of recent history, FDR. I was just kind of thinking about this. Uh, presidents feel much more real if you can physically see them move. There's a transition period, isn't there, between paintings, engravings, and then early photography, and everybody's still and stoic. And everybody kind of looks depressed, at least to my untrained eye. And then as soon as you can see that president move and they're wearing clothes which bear resemblance to the modern day, all of a sudden they feel much more real, much more human. They're not like chiseled from stone and as if to say they're a monument from history. Fascinating thing is what you said about FDR for me is that it's acceptance, And uh, you've said it before, but you said that's the lowest grade of happiness. Go through the grades of happiness for us and tell us why when I look at that gentleman in his uh, wheelchair at Yalta or or the Tehran conference or maybe given a fireside chat, that what I'm looking at is acceptance. Sure. Well, I'm going to make a contrast to another Democratic president, which is JFK, because they both Mm -hmm. suffered from physical ailments. Uh, They were both in a great deal of physical pain. But in Kennedy's case, I have these four levels of happiness from joy to pleasure to satisfaction to acceptance, coming down from the seventh floor to the first floor, uh, you know, elevator in in a hotel. So in the case of Kennedy, he's kind of in the middle. And Kennedy, Mm -hmm. one of the signs of happiness is it can make you outgoing, open to things, exploratory. The downside of happiness, and there is a downside, is it could also make you sloppy with the details. Family was desperate for Kennedy, for instance, to break off as an affair with Miss World, who was also having affairs with Nazi bigwigs during World War II. So Kennedy was someone who went after pleasure and enjoyed it and uh, wasn't quick to take care of the details sometimes. That is a real contrast uh, to FDR. On contrast, uh, generally, I heard Kennedy was very quick, if you get my drift. Yes. <laughs> uh, FDR was uh, someone who also had affairs, uh, also was in physical pain. But I think you're dealing with a really different person in FDR, really crafty. Truman said he was the coldest person I ever knew. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. My fellow Americans, last night, When I spoke with you about the fall of Rome, I knew at that moment that troops of the United States and our allies were crossing the channel in another and greater operation. It has come to pass with success thus far. And so, in this poignant hour, 
I ask you to join with me in prayer. Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. FDR was always calculating. I think of FDR as a pool player. You know, what's the angle? How am I going to get the ball off three banks and into the pocket in the corner? He was always reading the angle. So I think acceptance makes a lot more sense because when he originally went to Harvard, he kind of talked up his family connections. He was kind of a blowhard. And a lot of uh, blowback came from being a blowhard and people made fun of him and mocked him. And he Mm -hmm. vowed essentially that he was going to play his cards closer to the vest after that. And he was not Mm -hmm. going to be anybody's fool. And really what he has is a combination of that low-grade happiness, very different from Kennedy, and anger. And Kennedy is more of a straight shot of being out there and open. FDR is always guarded, always guarded. If you had to sum up, um, and there's been, what, 46 presidents, I think my 45, 45, 45, 45, sorry. Well, 44 people, 45 terms and off our presidencies. Yeah. I want to go through Doris Kern Goodwin's six essential traits a president needs. Now, um, we've talked about traits. She says they need empathy, resilience, communication, openness, impulse control and relaxation. I'll read those one more time. So maybe gather your thoughts. Empathy, resilience, communication, openness, impulse control, and relaxation. Which president has those traits which you can identify by looking at their face the most? In effect, this would be the perfect president. Lincoln, without a moment's hesitation. And the reason is that Lincoln had sadness. And in my study, sadness was the most reliable indicator of a less than great presidency. And mm-hmm. I say this because we haven't brought this in yet, but I did all the coding. I didn't run or look at the statistics. I just did the coding. I got my data set. I let actually uh-huh. my, separate, my separate guy who runs my stats for me. And then after it was all done, only then did I go back and look at how presidential scholars have rated the presidents for greatness. So the number one emotion that turned out to be detrimental to being great in office was sadness. And what's the number one exception to that? Lincoln. But Lincoln's number two emotion was actually happiness, satisfaction, low-grade happiness. But when I think about resiliency, for instance, one of the things that happiness does for you is makes you not give in to despair. So yes, you have sadness. Uh, there's a wonderful comment from Napoleon as he was retreating from Russia. He said, mud is the fifth element. Well, there was mm-hmm. a lot of mud in Lincoln's life, obviously, the Civil War, but also his earlier failures, his running for office, his wife, who was more than a little bit of a, uh, a handful to deal with, with her own mood swings going on, mm-hmm. his son that died. I mean, all, all sorts of things in his life. And yet he managed to find some equilibrium. He was really good at the self-depreciating joke. He was good at making jokes about other people. And happiness is not a trivial emotion. It really allows you to kind of steady the ship. So look at the combination. Sadness gives you empathy. Sadness gives you a chance to control your impulses because quite honestly, what sadness does in part is it slows you down. It's almost as if nature is saying to you, you just made a mistake and don't rush into the next mistake quite Mm -hmm. so quickly. It slows you down. So you get the impulse control. You get the empathy. You feel pain. You can recognize and feel other people's pain better. But the happiness also gives you resiliency. It gives you a chance to communicate because you are more open when you're happy. It is an emotion that involves hugging, embracing, taking in information, taking in other perspectives. There Mm -hmm. are studies that show that happy people tend to get the superior brainstorming solutions, and they do it more quickly. I think Lincoln is so fascinating because he has those two contrary emotions. It's like he's got the front and the back side of the moon all embodied in one guy at the moment when we most needed somebody like that in the White House. And then just the fact that he was so eloquent. I mean, by God, who else could write the Gettysburg Address on the back of an envelope? 
I mean, we've had some presidents who are semi-literate, in my opinion. Very few of them could write the Gettysburg Address, if any, once you get past Jefferson and Lincoln. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us the living rather to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us, the living, we here be dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they here gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve these dead shall not have died in vain, that the nation shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Well, I have to ask you this last question before we completely wrap up and say goodbye, Dan. We've been conducting this interview via a platform called Squadcast. So you've been able to see me, even though I'm I'm in uh, the Bay Area and you're in the greater Los Angeles. The obvious question is, what are you reading from my face, sir? Well, I, I haven't been able to get you to joy other than once or twice, although I tried with some of my better jokes. Uh, but you do have a nice smile. And you're right, just now you had a nice broad smile. So I got, I'd say I got you up to pleasure. Um, <laughs> when, when you're about to ask a question that has some skepticism regarding facial coding or mm-hmm. my conclusion on a president, you tend to go to disgust. You don't show contempt. So you're, you're, not, you're not showing disrespect for me, but um, I think any good journalist, quite honestly, has to come in both with being open-minded. They want to explore. They want to understand the world. Mm-hmm. At the same time, though, they want to have their bullshit detector on. I think that's mm-hmm. a really natural thing for someone who's in journalism or exploring the world to kind of do. And so I think you have both those impulses. You really have basically no sadness on your face. There's no contempt on your face. There is no fear on your face. You're ready to go anywhere with any question. There's been a little bit of surprise, but I would say mostly you're a play of happiness and disgust, but more happiness than disgust. Thank you for that, Dan Hill. Please tell us about the book that you have out. Sure. It's called uh, Two Cheers for Democracy, which I actually stole from E.M. Forster, who made that quip about democracy. And the subtitle is called How Emotions Drive Leadership Style. So there's three parts to the book. First one's on U.S. presidents. The second one's on debates. The third one, very importantly, is I used Freedom House, which looks at the level of democracy in countries. And I looked for the correlations between whether a leader tended toward dictatorship or democracy and what were the emotions they showed. Democratically inclined leaders were more open. They were happier. And those leaders who were more dictatorial in nature tended to show more disgust and anger on their faces. Very strong correlation regarding nature of their government and their emotive styles. That's a fascinating insight. Uh, Dan, are you on social media? Oh, most definitely. There's the usual Facebook stuff. You can find Dan Hill there. Uh, I've got a LinkedIn profile. I do also have a blog called Faces of the Week mm-hmm. uh, on at Emotions Wizard. And uh, so I take on political events on a nonpartisan basis. And I also sometimes delve into other interests like tennis in particular, sports in general, movies. I'm a big film buff. I'm ready for my close-up, those kinds of things. Yes. Fantastic. Also, listener, what you can do is if you agree or disagree with anything uh, which uh, Dan and I have discussed on this episode, you can go on to 
10usp.com. That's 10usp.com. Go and click the little red tab over on the right. That's the speak pipe button. And you can record a little message, which we can actually cut into a future episode. You can email me where I'm royfield at gmail.com or quite simply just go on to 10usp.com and go onto the contact us bit of the website and uh, write me a message. Thank you to everyone who's been uh, donating uh, recently to to the show. I I do this for for the love and for the inquiry of American politics. So it's nice to get a little bit of a helping hand. If you would like to donate, you can go on to 10usp.com and there is a little donate button there. Also, we are on Patreon if you'd like to give a recurring payment, but it's not mandatory. You can just do that because you just want to support what I do. Dan Hill, thank you again for coming on to the show. It's been an utterly fascinating hour that we spent in each other's company. I must admit, I felt incredibly naked all the way through. I thought this man's going to be <laughs> analysing me. He's going to be scrutinising my every facial expression. Whenever I forgot what we were talking about, all of a sudden I'd suddenly remember again and whatever. But um, thank you for putting me through the mill, sir. And thank you for answering and illuminating us on uh, the facial expressions, which uh, belie the emotions, the true character sets and traits of America's 45 presidents. I had a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.